Nixon's chief of staff says, quote, P, referring to President Nixon, emphasized that you have to face the fact that the whole problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognizes this without appearing to, unquote. To the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Hey, folks, welcome back to the Lions of Liberty podcast, episode 72. Before I get to today's guest, I want to take a second to let you know about Health Excellence Select, an amazing alternative to Obamacare, which utilizes health sharing to cover your medical costs. Your fees go directly to pay the medical bills of others, not to some massive crony insurance company. To learn more, head to lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is the development coordinator of the Drug Policy Alliance, James Carley. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thanks a lot, Mark. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you on, James. And, you know, the, the war on drugs is one of the most important issues, I think, for me personally and for many libertarians, as it should be. So um, how did you first become interested in drug policy and the war on drugs? Well, you know, I was in high school and I saw my friends who were good people get persecuted and prosecuted for nonviolent drug law offenses. And that struck me wrong. And then fast forward uh, a few years into the future... I was in graduate school for international relations and actually working over at the UN when a lot of the Latin American countries started coming forward saying they wanted to discuss reforming drug policies and and ending the drug war. And at the time, uh, other countries kind of snickered a little bit, but I thought that sounded interesting. And so I looked into a lot of the major players in the field and I found the Drug Policy Alliance. I saw the amount of work that they're doing and, and the leadership role they're taking nationally and around the world and said, I want to be a part of that movement. So how did you take that interest and actually take that next step and end up getting a job with the Drug Policy Alliance? How did you go about that? Because I know so many people kind of find an area they're interested in and they say, oh man, I really would love to work on that and I'd really love to work with this organization, but then it'll stop there. So how did you actually take that next step and actually get a job working with the Drug Policy Alliance? Well, anybody who's done a job search will, this will sound familiar to them, you know, networking reaching out to people who are in the movement that you want to be a part of, having conversations with the players and building relationships with them. It helped that also I was in graduate school. I got my master's degree nearby New York, actually, in northern New Jersey. So the office wasn't far away for me to come check the guys out. And we realized that we were on the same page. And they extended me a job offer after a period of time getting to know each other. Very cool. And what is your specific role there? Your title is is development coordinator. So what do you actually do? I research new foundation partners and assist with grant writing and foundation relationships to uh, fund a lot of our work. Now let's talk more about the Drug Policy Alliance for people out there that might not be familiar with this great organization. What is the specific mission of the Drug Policy Alliance? The Drug Policy Alliance envisions a just society where the use and regulation of drugs is rooted in science compassion, health, and human rights, where people are punished not for what they put in their bodies, but only for crimes against others. We seek to reduce the harms of drug use and drug prohibition and to promote the sovereignty of individuals over their minds and bodies. Well, all right. That certainly sounds like a mission in line with what we're trying to do here, which is really just create an environment where people respect the individual rights of others and where people respect 
the rights of people to do just about anything as long as they're not harming other people, and that includes you know, owning a certain plant or owning a certain substance or what have you, and it's really uh, in line with the Drug Policy Alliance mission, and this is a, a really great organization that's really had some great successes and uh, has really had a great effect on the war on drugs and, and the continuing legalization movement we're seeing across America. So can you explain exactly how the Drug Policy Alliance goes about its mission? Is it publicity campaigns? Is it focusing on legislation and lobbying and that kind of thing? Or is it more of a multifaceted approach? It's a very comprehensive and multifaceted approach. Our work addresses a wide range of social, political, and economic issues that are all touched by the drug war. Our four core issue areas are reforming the criminal justice system to reduce mass incarceration in the United States to promote a public health approach to drug use, to reform marijuana policies, and to promote a realistic and reasonable policy towards youth and drugs. Very good. And, and can you maybe just discuss a little bit more how drug policies in the United States, the current drug policies and those of the last 50 or so years since the war on drugs has really been going on, how do these drug policies negatively impact human rights overall? Well, Drug policies in the United States have resulted in a country that I love dearly. We have less than 5% of the world's population, yet we have almost 25% of the world's incarcerated population. And that doesn't sit well with me. A country that prides itself on liberty and, and freedom, to have almost a quarter of the world's people behind bars to be American, that's a problem. And so through that, we institute our criminal justice reforms. Uh, to reform the criminal justice system. We do work that uh, reduces drug possession penalties and that ultimately seeks to reduce the number of people arrested, convicted, and incarcerated for nonviolent drug offenses and to decrease the length of time that those who are in prison spend behind bars. Militarization of police. You know, we, we turn on the news, we see these uh, small police departments have military surplus equipment, mine-proof vehicles, and this is largely a result of the war on drugs because there's been Justice Department grants to provide these departments uh, with this military equipment in the name of fighting the war on drugs, uh, but also in part to keep the money flowing through the military-industrial complex. So it's a very entrenched problem. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you touched on that because I think that's a lot of what gets left behind in the debate is how much this stuff is kind of still tied into crony capitalism. I mean, there are so many military manufacturers that have contracts for all sorts of equipment. You know, they, they have surpluses and if they have surpluses, well, the, the government can't have surpluses because then they're not going to want to order as much stuff next year. So they have some, to find something to do with this equipment. And they actually send this equipment to police departments all over the country. And, you know, what are these police departments going to do with this equipment? Well, obviously, you take a situation where you have these drug laws, the war on drugs, a situation where you make something as simple as owning a plant illegal, something that many, many, many millions of people in this country do, not harming anybody else, but simply owning a plant or a certain substance. You make it illegal and you combine that with all these incentives, these perverse incentives that these police departments had and, and give them all this equipment. I mean, it's just a recipe for disaster. And it, the war on drugs essentially turns into a war on people. So I mean, I'm really glad you pointed that out. You're absolutely right. The war on drugs has become a war on citizens by the United States government. And that's what inspires me to get out of bed every day is undoing that terribly unjust and violative policy. For some reason, I think, well, I mean, there's there's understandable reasons because it's more of a prominent issue on the left. But 
I think the issue of drug legalization and I guess or may, as some conservatives might call it being soft on drugs or that kind of thing is often associated with progressive movements uh, with the left and that kind of thing. But you've actually written an article pretty recently over at the Huffington Post. You actually make the claim that, you know, being against the war on drugs is really a conservative should be a conservative position anyway. It's, it's not with many conservatives, but it should be. And so what is really the conservative case for against the war on drugs? You know, certainly, Mark. Uh, the conservative case on the war on drugs, now there are definitely aspects of our work that appeal across the aisle, and that's part of the beauty of our movement. But the conservative arguments for ending the war on drugs is that it's terrible economics. We've thrown uh, more than a trillion dollars at a problem and achieved no real demonstrable benefits. Um, drugs are still pretty easily available, cheap, potent. Levels of drug production have arguably not really decreased around the world, and nothing of value has been created or produced. And so I think anybody who's familiar with the business world will tell you, if you keep throwing money at something and you're not producing anything or achieving your goals, then it's probably a bad policy or, or a bad idea. Uh, and so the, something like that would not fly in the business world. So it's bad economics. Secondly, it's, it, it violates our fundamental liberties and freedoms. Uh, it, the notion that the state can deprive you of your freedom because of personal choices you make about yourself and your family and your own body has no place in a free society. It's really frightening to think that the government can knock down your door to come in to your house and raid your home and, and disrupt your life just because of personal choices you make about your own life. And the third argument really is that the war on drugs really does undermine community values and social fabric. When you get prosecuted for a drug law violation and put in jail, you know, that tears up families. You have, you have kids whose parents are in prison. Uh, you have Sesame Street having to explain to their, their audience what incarceration means. That's, that's messed up. Wow, is that a real episode of Sesame Street? Yes, it is. Wow, that is just so frightening. I mean, and that just shows you how common it is for a kid to have a parent that's put in jail for whatever reason. But uh, we know by the statistics that often the reason is related to the war on drugs in one way or the other. If it's not the you know the reason for the arrest, it's, it might be the reason for the confrontation in the first place. I mean, we saw even, not even with what people would consider drugs, but even just having high taxes on cigarettes. Like with the Eric Garner case has recreated this black market where, yeah, this guy was selling loose cigarettes on the street and, you know, the state didn't like it, the store owners didn't like it and they took it out on him in a physical way and it creates so many, I guess, opportunities for confrontations between police and, you know, otherwise completely harmless citizens because I don't see no harm in selling loose cigarettes. I mean, and that's just cigarettes, which are not nearly as maligned, you know, by the state and by the laws as other substances such as marijuana or even heroin, cocaine, meth, and that kind of thing. But the point is, when you ban things and you make things illegal, whether it's a drug or whether it's just, you know, adding an extra tax on cigarettes and making selling them without that tax illegal. When you do that, you're just creating all these opportunities for confrontations with the police and all these incentives for the police to to make these arrests. And it's just a combination that has resulted in just disaster for so many people and so many families. Um, can you describe a little more just how much 
how the war on drugs, why is it disproportionately really affect young people and minorities more so than you know, the rest of the population? I mean, there, if you just look at the prison population alone, the that when we know that most of those arrests are drug-based arrests, highly disproportionate, you know, African-Americans and, and Latinos and minorities as opposed to white people, whereas the use of those drugs isn't necessarily as disproportionate. It seems across the board, I think, well, white people and other minorities are use drugs at similar levels. And correct me if I'm wrong, you might know the statistics more than I do, but why is the, I guess, the punishment of the war on drugs dis, you know, so disproportionate? To really understand the answer to that question, you really need to look at the history. And, and there's two prongs of history. There's the history of drug policy, and then there's the history of racial subjugation in the United States. Now, let's start with the history of drug policy. Back in the late 1800s, heroin was a common additive to patent medicines that, you know, your aunt or your grandmother might take to alleviate a little bit of pain in their joints or relax in the evening. And, you know, there weren't really these prohibition laws right then. But then we start to see Chinese immigrants come over to work out in the West on the railroads and in the mines. And all of a sudden you start to have uh, mainstream society feel threatened by this 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 group of outsiders with their their opium dens and the fear that they might convert you know white women and children into opium fiends and then we see the first opium prohibition laws at that point shortly afterward we start to see in the south uh, this fear that uh, cocaine will enrage a black man and cause him to to again pervert white women and children and then shortly afterwards in the Southwest with Mexican migrants and with migrants from Latin America, there's this fear that their funny-smelling marijuana will, will, will alter their minds and make them go crazy. You see old posters from that era call it loco weed, which is just an atrocious name. And so the root of drug prohibition is in who has been perceived to use drugs. When there's a group of people that mainstream society in general decides might pose a threat to its fundamental culture, then it develops laws to somehow target those groups. And that's how we resulted in drug prohibitions. Now, on the other side, we've got the, the, racial, the history of racial persecution in the United States, going back to slavery, which in many ways is America's original sin, right? We had slavery, and then we had the Civil War. And after the Civil War, we had issues of involuntary servitude. The 13th Amendment prohibited slavery and involuntary servitude except as punishment for crime. Now, that's important because that opened the window then for criminal laws to be developed in the future that could potentially be used to target minorities, and that's largely how it played out. We had the black codes in the 1860s and 70s, vagrancy laws that were used as reasons to pick up, you know, people of color. Uh, then we had Jim Crow laws, segregation, that lasted until the 1960s when the Civil Rights Act was signed. After the Civil Rights Act, then we get President Nixon elected in 1968, and shortly thereafter, we have the war on drugs. Now, Mark, let me tell you something that's really disturbing. In 1994, the diaries and recordings of Nixon's chief of staff were published, and there was one line in there that I find just utterly reprehensible, where Nixon's chief of staff says, quote, P, referring to President Nixon, emphasized that you have to face the fact that the whole problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognizes this without appearing to, unquote. Wow. Shortly afterwards, the war on drugs is declared. 
Wow, I had never heard that before. That is unbelievable. That, so, I mean, it, it was that much out there in terms of when they were crafting these laws. I mean, that was the intention, really, from the beginning with all this stuff, it sounds like. You find a group of people that you don't like for whatever reason, and then you create a, a nice-sounding plan, which, hey, the war on drugs, in a way, it sounds good to the ear. It's like, okay, of course we're going to fight drugs. Drugs are bad. You know, people are addicted, and people just think about maybe their neighbor who had a heroin addiction or something, and they say, of course, of course we're against that. We'll support a war on drugs. But what it really is, is as we discussed before, it's a war on people, and in this case, it really is a war on certain people. It's war on certain people based on their ethnicity or, or that kind of thing. And it really always has from the beginning. So I never heard that Nitsen quote before. That's absolutely stunning. We've kind of been all doom and gloom so far. And the war on drugs is, is certainly worthy of doom and gloom because it really is. It brings doom and gloom and misery to so many people and so many families. But there has been positive news, in, especially in the last several years. So can you talk to me about of all the recent things that have been going on? There have been so many great victories against the war on drugs. You know, so many states that are legalizing strictly for medical purposes. And now we even have states that are legalizing marijuana altogether in Oregon, Washington, Colorado. So what of these recent successes can be attributed at least partially to the work of the Drug Policy Alliance? Have they been on the ground, you know, working in these states and working on all this legislation? We are a major driving force behind a lot of the marijuana policy reforms that have taken place. For example, in November, you know, Oregon voted to legalize marijuana for recreational use. The Drug Policy Alliance had a role in, in drafting some of that language and assisting with uh, financing for that campaign. And we also helped with uh, media as well. In Alaska, we assisted with fundraising because Alaska also recently legalized recreational marijuana. In November, Alaska also legalized recreational use of marijuana. In uh, D.C., which did the same, uh, we had, were a driving force in the ground campaign and with fundraising. Well, I mean, that's great. I mean, it's, it's great that you guys are really looking at the, at the kind of state level, because I think that's where, just because of the practical ways our system is laid out, you know, that's where we have the most ability to kind of craft these laws. I mean, it seems that the federal government isn't really interested in changing the war on drugs. At least they haven't been in the past. Although recently, in the, in the latest spending bill, I'm sure you saw that they actually snuck a little provision in there that really did scale back the federal war on medical marijuana, at least. So can you tell us a little bit about that recent provision? And, you know, I don't know, were you guys involved with that as well? We were involved. We have an office in D.C. that uh, handles national affairs, and uh, my very excellent colleagues down there were a very powerful driving force in connecting with the lawmakers from across the aisle and explaining to them why it was an important policy to pass. You know, it really is a states' rights issue as well. The idea of the whole federal system in the beginning was that the states could be the incubators for new experimental policies, and so in many ways permitting Colorado and other states with medical marijuana laws to proceed uninhibited, you know, without interference from the DEA or any part of the federal government, that really strikes to the heart and the core of the beautiful system that our founding fathers developed. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, and I think it's really a positive that finally, after all these years, we're actually seeing laws change, which is just something that I think many people just thought wasn't going to happen, even at the federal level. So it really is a positive development. And it's showing that, you know, politically being against the war on drugs or, you know, kind of scaling it back a bit is no longer the political death. It's actually a popular political position, which is really just reflects, I think, the state of mind of the population. I think people are becoming a lot more informed on these issues, thanks to organizations like the Drug Policy Alliance. 
thanks to groups of all political bents being out there up front on this issue. It's an issue that really seems to bring people together. I mean, libertarians, progressives, what have you, can all kind of join on this one issue. And, and when you have something like that that has the ability to create such broad coalitions, you know, that's when you can really affect change, especially at the state level, even at the federal level. There's really no issue we can't come together on when you have that many people that are broadly beginning to agree on something, which I think people really finally are when it comes to the war on drugs, at least with marijuana, because I think it's it's kind of the obvious case. It's the one where the facts are just so blatant in saying, look, this is not a harmful thing. I mean, even if you accept that premise of the war on drugs as stopping people from doing something to harm themselves, you can't even make that case even if you did agree with that concept. You can't even make that case in any logical way with marijuana and I think it kind of exposes the whole thing really because most of the war on drugs that the vast majority of the money that goes into it is focused on marijuana so if we can scale back the marijuana thing and change the laws in regards to that you know I think it really opens up the door for you know looking at other drugs in the same way and not throwing people in the jail cell for simply even having heroin or cocaine or something else that we might agree has more harmful effects when abused Marijuana really seems like, I guess, the canary in the coal mine with all the the change in drug laws. What do you think about that? Well, definitely. You know, the marijuana issue is it directly touches more lives than any other single drug policy. You know, about half of the 1.5 million drug arrests each year are for marijuana-related offenses, and almost 90% of those are nothing really more than simple possession. Marijuana policy and changing marijuana policy is a pillar of ending the drug war, and by reforming marijuana policy, we can then begin to demonstrate and really see how that also touches on our other issues like reforming criminal justice system, reducing mass incarceration, having a frank and honest conversation about the health-related issues related to drug use. Now, James, I've got just a few more questions, but first, I want to take a minute to tell everyone about our sponsor, Health Excellence Select from My Academy of Health Excellence. Now, until last year, I was just like you guys. I saw my health insurance cost double and my deductibles skyrocket thanks to the Obamacare health insurance mandates. Determined not to participate in this corporatist scheme, I sought an alternative and found out about health sharing, a fantastic concept in which your monthly fees go directly to pay the medical bills of others, not into the pockets of some crony capitalist fat cat. Health Excellence Select combines health sharing with a patient care personal assistant, 24-7 phone access to board-certified physicians, and discounts on dental, vision, and other benefits. The best part is that for most people, plans with Health Excellence Select are much more affordable than Obamacare insurance, and it meets the legal mandate, so you will not be fined for using it in lieu of insurance. For more information, head on over to lionsofliberty.com health. James, another recent success against the war on drugs is in my state where I live, California, we passed something called Prop 47, Proposition 47. Now out here we have a system where every every time there's an election, there's a bunch of people that get signatures for a bunch of propositions and we all vote on them. I don't know if I love that as a system, but when it can be used for positive gains, I certainly love it. And in this case, I was happy to go to the polls and vote in favor of Proposition 47, which drastically reduces uh, the penalties and the classification of drug possessions and nonviolent crimes that are related to drugs. So, you know, people that used to have felony convictions are now being downgraded to misdemeanors, and that has just effects in so many different ways that people might not think of. You know, if someone was a felon before, they couldn't, you know, own a firearm when they get out of jail ever again. Now, if that person is reduced from a felon to a misdemeanor... Now that person can own a firearm, and maybe that person can now get a job they couldn't get before. So something like this has just massive, you know, positive effects on nonviolent people, and it's really a positive development. And 
Do you see Proposition 47 as kind of being a model for other states and how they can go about kind of curtailing drug laws on their own? Prop 47 is a proposition that the Drug Policy Alliance supported uh, with financing and we're helping with its implementation. It's definitely something, a positive development we like to see. There are going to be different policies that arise in different states that, you know, attempt to achieve similar objectives. And we're interested to see the whole spread of uh, different policy options that the people of the states come up with themselves. That's great. And, you know, not all of the work you guys do is confined to the United States. You are an international organization. And, you know, when people think about countries that are good on drugs, I think the Netherlands is the first one that comes to mind. People think of Amsterdam and it's a place where you can, I think, legally go to cafes and get pot, legally get mushrooms. And they generally don't deal with things in a criminalized way. I think I saw a sign recently on the Internet. It was a meme going around where I guess there was some bad cocaine in Amsterdam. People were selling white heroin and it was cocaine and people were overdosing on it thinking it was cocaine and they had a sign up warning about it. And at the bottom of the sign, it says, you will not be arrested for using cocaine in Amsterdam. And I just thought that was just such a good way to look at it. You know, we're like, just to emphasize to people, look, we're, if we're really trying to help people, throwing you in jail is not going to help. If you have a problem, if you have a medical issue, don't be afraid to seek the medical help you need because we're, we're not going to criminalize you for it. And it's a really good approach. So I'm glad they, they're doing things like that there. So what do you see on your end as as kind of the best countries when it comes to drug policy? There are several European countries that have kind of taken the lead on this issue because they realized earlier on than we did that drugs are really a health issue and should be treated as such, not as a criminal issue. And so we see the Netherlands advising people to avoid dangerous drugs and to seek help if they are in trouble with it. Portugal is another great model that we admire very much. In Portugal, all drug use has been decriminalized and... If you violate one of their drug policies, then instead of being arrested and incarcerated, you are taken to what's called a dissuasion committee, which is composed of a social worker or a psychiatrist, a doctor, perhaps a lawyer. And you have a conversation with this committee and they can assess your case and direct you to the services and treatment that is most appropriate for you. And it's non-coercive. So Portugal model is a great model. You know, something interesting is going on in New Zealand as well. Recently, they passed what's called the Psychoactive Substances Act. Now, what's interesting about New Zealand is this was the private industry, manufacturers of what's called party pills and some synthetic cannabis that we know sometimes as spice or K2. Manufacturers of those things realized that uh, if they self-regulated and worked with the government to build a regulatory framework for themselves, then that would increase quality control, increase safety, increase perception, and open up a new market. So what we saw in New Zealand was a really interesting case of an industry choosing to self-regulate itself for the sake of enabling itself to thrive and succeed. And at the same time, increase public safety, diminish and address criminal justice issues, and and improve public health. And that's a really interesting model that's taking place there. Now, in Uruguay, for example, that was an issue that DPA also took the lead on. And in fact, one of my colleagues spent almost an entire year living there helping to organize civil society and promote the message that legalizing cannabis and creating regulated, responsible markets for cannabis would help to mitigate some of the threats that the country was feeling from criminal gangs that had control of the drug market. And we're starting to just see that really get implemented uh, at this stage. It's really exciting to watch. 
It's really great stuff, Jim, and it's great to see you know, so much progress being made on the war on drugs, which probably to many libertarians and people that were opposed to it 20, 30 years ago, it probably seemed like something that you just could not ever make progress on. And now we're seeing it not just here at home in the United States, but also at the international level. It's really something, it seems like there's a real sea change going on about how people are looking at this issue, which can only be a positive thing. Now, with all this positive stuff going on, though, you know there's going to be people opposing it because there's a lot of people that have vested interest in keeping drugs illegal. There are people in governments, there are people in drug cartels that want drugs to be illegal because that's how they make all their money, by you know working on the black market and operating that way. And these guys aren't about to close up shop and open up a, a pharmacy to, to deal this stuff. So you know, what do you think are the biggest roadblocks to all the progress being made on the war on drugs? Let me tell you what, Mark. Funding. And I'm not just saying this because I happen to work on the fundraising team here, right. but seriously, you look at all the work that has taken place just in the past five years, much less the past 20 years that we've been working on these issues. This work doesn't just happen for free, and policies and don't enact and, and minds don't change without education. All of that takes effort. All of that takes money. Funding is very important to our cause. It's not going to happen by itself. We've got a lot of momentum that we've worked hard to build, and we need that funding to keep that ball rolling, to keep those policies changing, and to keep bringing reform. So funding is always the biggest roadblock. If we can just keep that funding going, we can keep this train going, and we will change the world. In terms of policies, you know, Five years ago, the roadblocks we were facing were different in many ways, but in many ways they were still the same. People are always going to have a little bit of fear of the unknown. We're used to the system of prohibition, so changing that is, is new, and new things are frightening. I mean, anybody, I think, would kind of agree with that. So part of our work is public education, explaining why this is a good idea and helping to belay people's fears of the unknown. And by talking about it more, it becomes less unknown. Other roadblocks include district attorneys and prosecutors who do have a vested interest in upholding the laws and the status quo. And that's something that we continue to work on as well. Uh, the current political system is so mucked up. It's their entrenched interests, entrenched moneyed interests, and bipartisan disagreement. So that's another major roadblock. However, as we've seen in Congress just the past year, it's really emerging. The, the congressmen and senators, lawmakers are really starting to understand that drug policy reform is an issue that the people support. Oh, James, it's been an absolute pleasure, and, uh, and I'm really glad there are organizations like the Drug Policy Alliance and people like yourself that are out there working every single day. You know, I, I do this stuff in my free time. I come on the air and I talk about all sorts of issues related to individual rights, and, and I'm working hard to try to get to change people's minds about how they view their fellow man. But I'm really impressed when there are people out there that do this 100% of the time because it really, truly is important, and it's going to take hundreds of thousands of people doing it 100% of the time to I think really see all of the change that we need to see. And I'm really thrilled that there are organizations like the Drug Policy Alliance out there. So please, you know, if you're listening now and you understand why the war on drugs is so terrible, please consider at least checking out the Drug Policy Alliance, kicking them a few bucks, every single penny, every single dollar I know will help out. So please do consider that. And James, before I let you go, how can people get involved more directly with the Drug Policy Alliance? And, you know, get, feel free to give out any kind of contact information that you'd like to give out your Twitter or any of that stuff. 
Definitely. Well, check out our website. It's drugpolicy.org. Uh, you know, if you really want to get involved, change happens at the local level. If this is an issue you care about, run for local office or get involved with your local political party of your choice. And when you get involved, keep bringing this issue up as one that's important to you. Keep that conversation going. Write letters to the editor. Call in on talk radio shows. Talk about this issue. You know, if you work at a job that drug tests, find ways of challenging that policy what's always helpful and words I live by is be willing to take risks. Put yourself out there. Don't be afraid to speak up for your beliefs and your principles. That's how you become a leader and that's how you change the world. James Carley, thank you so much again for coming on the show and wish you guys the best of luck. Thanks a lot, Mark. It was great talking to you. We'll be back after a little break. Hey guys, Mark Clare here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the morning roar. That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of The Morning Roar where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at lionsofliberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. Your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed my interview with James Carley. Now what a great guy and what a great organization the Drug Policy Alliance is. Now many of us in the libertarian movement have been celebrating the recent successes in chipping away at the war on drugs. And there have been so many. You know, we've seen more than half of states legalize medical marijuana. Two states completely legalizing marijuana in Colorado and Washington. We've also seen other victories, such as California's Prop 47, which reduces many drug penalties from a felony to a misdemeanor, which can see people's you know, Second Amendment rights restored, make it easier for them to get a job. You know, most importantly than that, you know, get them out of jail even earlier. And so there's so many great things going on against the war on drugs, so many positive developments. But, you know, in some ways, I think we take it for granted. We think, well, things are changing Things are great. Things are moving in the right direction. But, you know, this legislation doesn't write itself or campaign for itself. It takes real work behind the scenes. And many don't realize the great work people like James Carley and so many others at the Drug Policy Alliance have been putting in behind the scenes for years and years and years, day in and day out. They can certainly use your support as well. So please head over to drugpolicy.org and consider a donation or just spread word about Drug Policy Alliance. Now, the war on drugs is one of the greatest affronts to humanity perpetrated by, well, I want to say by government, but really by our fellow man, because at the end of the day, it's other individuals with certain ideas that are crafting these laws, crafting these policies that are enacted by the government. It is absolutely outrageous that anybody still accepts the notion that someone should be locked in a cage for owning a plant. And things like this change by changing the way people believe. And you know, that's one belief that just has to change. But we don't have to change every single human being's mind to change a specific policy. We need to have engaged people influencing and energizing others to roll back some of these human rights abuses, to roll back some of these human rights abuses like the war on drugs. 
Speaking of having a conversation, I got to tell you about our new Facebook group. It's called the Lions of Liberty Forum. You know, in addition to our normal Facebook page, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty, you can also join the Lions of Liberty Forum, a place where we can discuss all sorts of ideas, discuss our articles, discuss our podcasts, or you can make posts there as well and discuss any topics you guys want to discuss. We really want to have a place where people can come, check in, and engage in conversation. So please check out the Lions of Liberty Forum. If you just search for that on Facebook, you'll find it. Hit us up and we will, uh, you know, one of our admins will approve you to join the group and get this conversation going. And of course, we're going to keep it going here every single week, including later this week on Thursday when my guest will be a gentleman by the name of Rayford Davis. He's an ex-police officer who is now an outspoken libertarian and vocal opponent of the war on drugs. Until then, of course, you can continue to hear this show in so many different ways. iTunes, Stitcher Radio, you can hear us on the radio, on streaming online at libertytalk.fm every Saturday and Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern. And, of course, throughout the week at the Liberty Radio Network on lrn.fm. And, like I said, join us back here again this coming Thursday for Rayford Davis. Until then, folks, do I really have to tell you once again to live long and live Mm. Yeah, live free.